This is the Straight Dope, episode 73. I have got a one word written down on my sheet of paper, and it's plasticity. Plasticity is a kind of a, a theme that's been coming up and recirculating through a lot of the comments and my emails, my feedback that people have been asking. And even though all of the questions seem to be coming from random and different places, the idea and the concept keeps coming back. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about plasticity and also just about this time of year, which is kind of fun as competitions seem to be winding down and hunting season seems to be picking up. I like the shift in the media. I like the shift in the podcast themes and pictures that percolate through social media and stuff. And I just think it's kind of a fun thing because it changes conversations. And as those conversations change, a lot of ideas are shared and people are interacting in a more positive way than what you see a little bit throughout the year. And I'll I'll try to get to that if I can. But again, you know, I'm down here by myself in the basement trying to maintain a train of thought circulating one word. So sometimes the talks kind of drift off topic, but I will try to stay focused. So first, let me introduce kind of how I'm thinking about the concept of plasticity. And the way I'm thinking about it is contrast with elasticity. So the, the easiest way to start is just saying, like, you know, imagine a rubber band, and rubber bands are elastic, right? Or sometimes they're referred to as elastic bands. And if you pull on them, they stretch, and they can conform their shape, but then they go back to their original starting point. Now, I don't want to get in arguments with engineers or physicists. You know, we're, we're, this is a general kind of conceptual theme here, so bear with me. <coughs> The idea of elasticity is that if you get stretched or bent out of shape, you go back to the way that you were. And that's kind of cool, right? That is a useful and helpful image to have in your mind when you're thinking about experience and growth, too. I'm going to contrast that with plasticity, which tends to come up more often. It tends to be how I think about changing towards achieving a goal or learning and growing because plasticity, unlike elasticity, when you apply that pressure and force in a direction, you can get a shift in that direction. The thing is, when you take off that pressure, you, it usually stays deformed in that shape, right? And I think of us in our life experiences and in our growth processes, um, as you grow, you change permanently. And you're changing in a way that I consider plastic, Right? You, you apply pressure, direction, and you get real change in that direction. Now, if you have too much change, obviously it gets thin, so that you have to kind of also imagine that as you give yourself time and growth, that, that lump of plastic, I guess, you know, grows in, in volume. But to get real change in a direction, you have to apply force and pressure. And the idea that once you've changed, you can't go back. So it's not like Napoleon Dynamite's uncle that wants to just go back to his glory days in football, if you could go back in time, you, right, you're, you're permanently different, right? So, you know, let's say you're 500 pounds, but in high school you were 180 pounds. Like if we could somehow miraculously just make you 180 pounds, you wouldn't look like you did in high school because your bones have changed um, and your tissues have changed and your experience have changed, your nervous system, your movement patterns, your expressions, what you think is funny, you're constantly changing in a forward direction based on the pressure and direction that are applied to you from your external, internal life, right? So I'm thinking of us as, as, as being more plastic in this sense. So training for shooting, I think of as plastic also. The problem is <clears throat> you have to have specific applied pressure direction change. And that change may not necessarily be change that puts you closer to your goal, and so you need to stop every once in a while and assess that 
change, that real change, and then decide, okay, did this get me closer to my goal or not? And a lot of times, there's a substantial amount of trial and error. You fall, you get back up, you think, okay, now I got to try this, and then you do this, and then, okay, that's getting me closer to my goal because you've got measurable metrics that get you closer to your goal. Something that's elastic, there's no real change, so you're really never going to actually get better. So I, I can think of some things that are fairly elastic that get you excited, um, and those are those are kind of false gains, right? They're misleading, but they're emotionally kind of um, tempting because you know you you see you see something and you're convinced like, oh, I totally need that, like a new piece of equipment. You know, like, oh my God, I need that, and then you get it, and you're not any better. Oh, I need this. Oh no, you're not any better. Or, uh, um, and 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 so those don't elicit real change. Now it doesn't mean that they're not fun, <clears throat> but but you're not necessarily any different afterwards. So, how do you apply that pressure and focus to kind of achieve real change? And that change tends to be permanent. For example, a good shooter, a lot of the good shooters now. They don't need to shoot. They just go to a competition and they perform well because that real change occurred and they don't really need to go out to the range all the time. They don't need to dry fire all the time. Now, I think at, at higher levels, as shooters get better, they, were, they will have to to maintain that proficiency, but we're not at that level now. And, and I've said that before. I will argue that to no end now that we're just not achieving the maximum level of performance <clears throat> yet because it's not much of a sport yet. It's still just a hobby where people are going out and some people are getting some financial return from selling price table stuff. But for the most part, there is no incentive to turn it into a real sport and put that level of performance in yet, but it will come. That plasticity allows us to gain a level of proficiency. Then for the most part, you can put your rifle down for a month, pick it up, and shoot just as well as, as you did before, but you have to get to that level. So, so how do you get to that level? And that's where the social media and some of these questions, my original um, writing down of plasticity came up because there, there are some people out there that like to shoot me messages and emails. And when I talk to my friends who have other shooting schools or their other well-known shooters, and a lot of these same names keep popping up, and I'm going to just talk about, like, I'm going to put, 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 put all of the stuff together into one imaginary person, but they say, you know, <clears throat> I went to a class and they told me to do this and now I'm not shooting any better. You know, what should I do? Okay. Well, it wasn't my class and I don't know what they told you to do. And, and I'm not sure what you tried to do to get better or to figure out whether you're better. So, so I started asking questions. Well, when was your class? Well, it was three days ago and you just went to the range and you decided that you're not really any better yet. Okay. So you asked me how to improve what they taught you. And then simultaneously, you're asking somebody else. And then you're looking at other programs and you're getting online and you're reading from all of these websites, all of the things that relate somehow to what you think you should be doing. And, and I think that that is looking for elasticity and not, not plasticity. So I'm going to back up and I'm going to kind of... Um, kind of try to spitball some things. Now, for the most part, I speak to people who are competing because that involves training and then some sort of an outlet. And and, and if you're a hunter or you're something else, like I, I'm, I'm happy, like I think it's good to have good marksmanship, but I don't think the levels of proficiency are as important for a lot of hunting scenarios than they are in competition because the standards are a little bit higher in competition. But nonetheless, there are some schools out there that really do focus on training people for competition. Like um, Max Ordnett 
teaches a lot of classes. They teach law enforcement. They teach you know general shooting classes, and they teach competition-based stuff. Uh, Marne Sniper, they teach competition-based stuff. JTAC teaches competition-based. Those are probably the three big schools that I can think of here off the top of my head that are training people to go perform at competition. And if you go to one of their classes... Uh, you know that that's cool, right? That that's what they do, right? And you should they should have a track record of producing people that do better at competitions, and and you should ask them, and and I'm sure that there's a record of that. It's not something that I go try to try to figure out because I don't I don't work for them. But nonetheless, if you go to one of their classes and then you go home, like you should spend time. Like I I would my guess, like what I tell people that come to me for training is that you need to spend a dedicated focus, nothing else, six to ten sessions working specifically on the things that I tell you to work on. <clears throat> and I pick very few things for them to work on, but do it for six to 10 sessions before we even take a measurement. You got to put in some focused pressure in a direction to get real change. And so I would say, if you've taken a class from them, ask them like, how long and how much should I practice this before I st- go out and start testing this so that it, it elicits real change in the skills that I've learned and that I've developing, but I would not take one of their classes this weekend and then go to another school's class next weekend and then go to another school's class the next weekend and expect anything to happen, right? Because you need to listen to the people that are teaching you and do what they're telling you to. And, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any individual curricula that they might have, but if you apply them all they might counteract each other. It would be like if I decided I was going to go on a diet, right? And if you know me, you know that I'm not into diets. I think a lot of them are silly and misinformed and it's garbage, right? It's uh, kind of a media trap to sell you shit. But let's say I decided I was going to go on a diet because I read about this and I, I decided I was going to be a vegetarian. But on Tuesday... Like, I don't want to be a vegetarian because I saw this Instagram post that said I needed to be a paleo. I needed to eat more bacon. And, and, and so I decided, you know, screw it. On Tuesday, like, man, I'm not feeling any better, so I'm going to eat a bunch of bacon and hamburgers. And then I saw another post. I'm like, man, they look really good. Like, they look healthy, and they're eating a Mediterranean diet. And I'm going to drink a bunch of olive oil and eat, you know, garbanzo beans and shit. And then... On Thursday, I'm like, man, I want to be keto. So Thursday and Friday, I do whatever you do to be keto. And then I'm like, man, you know, uh, maybe on the weekend, I'll eat a bunch of fruit and drink smoothies and stuff. And and, and I, I, think, I think that you're just kind of sampling all this stuff in a way that's much more elastic and it's eliciting no real change. And not only that, but you're just kind of wasting your time, money, and you're getting no real growth. And you could be setting yourself back quite a bit. Now with the diet thing, I imagine that, um, you know, that, I guess that's a weird, but, but you, can, you, can, you can understand what I'm trying to say, right? So you need to focus and apply that pressure direction for change and have that change be measurable. So if you go to a school, honor their curriculum and honor the time that you, and the money that you paid them and focus on it for a while before you decide whether it's actually working or not. Don't just jump around with your tongue hanging out of your mouth, clicking through social media and deciding everything that everyone's doing, you got to do it all at the same time because that's just not what happens. That's not how anybody gets better at anything. And you have to give yourself time. And that change may not 
produce the results that you want, but you'll have no idea if you don't give it time. And you'll be changed permanently for sure if you do that. And it might not be in the direction that you want, but that's life, right? You are always altered by your life experiences that are real, <clears throat> and you can never go back to the way that you were before, but that's the only way to move forward, and it's the only way to achieve things is to be new, because if you could already do it, and it didn't require change, you'd be doing it already, and that's just not the case, right? Nobody's doing it already. Now, in terms of like general schools, Frank Galley teaches a really co good general class. CR2 teaches a really good uh, general class. Uh, Brian Whalen at Colorado Precision um, something teaches a really good class. There's a lot of general schools that teach you general rifle fundamentals and marksmanship, but it's the same thing. You got to do, they, they might teach and approach things differently, but for you to really gain from those experiences, you have to invest the time afterwards to make sure that what you were taught gets embodied a little bit and pulls out that change and is measurable in some way or another. And if it's not measurable, then you didn't gain anything from it, and it wasn't really um, worthwhile, and you're not going to change. But when you ask me what somebody else taught you and how to change it and fix it, like you're, you're kind of wasting your time because I, I'm not going to give you advice on how to fix something or test something that you went to another person to get help with because... It does everyone a disservice. It's not <clears throat> not a negative thing because they're all reputable schools, but you need to just focus and ask them for advice. And when you start asking everybody for advice, it's going to be conflicting, and you're really not going to go anywhere. You're just going to be treading water. And all the advice that you get, it might be great advice, but they might be telling you to follow a different diet plan, and they will contradict one another and you will continue to get the results. And there's a couple of people that for the last year have basically just been revolving around this level of performance, trying all these random things, you know, not necessarily coming to me, but asking me a lot of questions. And you just see it and you see the timestamps on the messages and you say, man, you literally haven't gotten better. Maybe you've gotten worse because you have all this information and now you have no idea what to do with it. Whereas if you focused, you wouldn't have needed any of it in the first place, right? I also have guys that have, actually, I'm going to share a, a picture um, on my Instagram because a guy just sent me a picture and he said, this is, um, you know, it's timestamp. This is my craft target from one year ago. And it was like a four or a five. And here's my recent craft target. And it's like a 1.2 or something like something ridiculously small. And they've also gone from being mid-pack to several top three trophies at national events. So I think that kind of stuff is what I kind of think of as the appropriate use of directional focus training because, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do, right? We are constantly on information overload. It's not unusual to hear, oh, well, you come and you're going to be drinking from a fire hose. Well, who the fuck would want to drink from a fire hose, right? Like, you need to drink in quantities that you can actually swallow. Otherwise, it's just spilling all over the place, and you'll literally get nothing and no benefit from it. So um, what you want is to honor the place that you go to with focus and change, and then you say, look, I didn't really gain the results that I wanted, and so then you put that aside and you say, look, I'm not going to be a fruititarian shake drinker as my primary diet because it didn't work for me or 
something or other, right? So um, that is kind of this plastic advice. Now, when you go to people, make sure that you go to people with real firsthand experience. And I understand that that's really hard to figure out because people can use their titles or experiences in weird ways where it's very hard for you not being initiated in various um, areas to decide like, who am I going to, who am I going to learn from? And then I would say like, well, if that's the case, then ask or do some research to figure out where the top performers learn from. I think that there's something to be said for that kind of um, one-on-one relationship of of learning from people directly, but I think that's a really really tricky uh, really tricky situation, and it's something that um, I don't know. Anyway, it's not the topic of this, but but I do think it's very important for you to um, to go back and and hook up with people that are experienced firsthand, and then have that credibility. Uh, and, and that lineage that can say, look, this guy, I, you know, I helped this person get a trophy and I helped this person get a trophy and I helped this person get a trophy. Um, that is, you know, it's like getting a boxing coach. You want to get a boxing coach that helped Mike Tyson get a trophy or, or maybe that's not a good example or a powerlifting coach to help you, you know, lift up a monster truck tire or, or whatever. You don't want just the random dude that looks big because, um, you know, who knows, who, who knows why, right? Uh, and so, I think that um, is is where you kind of want to uh, go to for for information. Uh, I I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, and people say, "Well, where do you where do you get your information from?" Well, typically, I just call my friends or call somebody directly that I know is at the top of the game, um, that I'm kind of going after, and I say, "Like, hey, let's let's talk about this. Does this make sense? This is what I was thinking about doing." But I don't just say, like, um, you know, what do you do? Because what you do is going to be different than what I need to do to get somewhere. And so I usually go after a source and then just have conversations with them about stuff. But if I broke down my social media consumption, um, you might actually be really surprised. Like, I post Instagram every day, but I post Instagram to my phone, and that populates to Facebook. And I typically don't look at Instagram and Facebook after I post much until like in the evening and then I'll get an alert like somebody tagged you. But if you don't tag me, like I probably am not going to be on social media all that much. Now it's on on my phone or my laptop or something like that because people send me messages. So I pull up Messenger a lot to answer replies or my text messages or something like that. But I don't actually look at much on Instagram and Facebook because there's so much just garbage and nonsense that people answer. And that's one of the reasons why Riflecraft doesn't have like forums and the ability to have, you know, everybody answering questions is because 80% of the people out there providing so much misinformation and kind of garbage information that it's not only misleading, but it ends up turning into just arguments because egos get in the way. And I, and I think that that's a huge negative of some of that stuff, even though it's fun to see pictures and fun to um, see stuff like that, uh, unless I'm tagged or kind of pulled into it, or somebody sends me a link that says, "Hey, check check out this thread," I don't I don't just scroll scroll through that stuff. But I do spend a lot of time in the car. Uh, I drive my kids around. I'm kind of a you know I'm the support guy at home um, since COVID. I've been doing a lot of the house stuff and also the kid transport and 
driving the kids around. Um, I have I have a daughter that goes between two schools, and then I pick them up at after school and before school. So anyway, and then if I go to a range or go to the grocery store, you know, whatever, I'm in the car a lot, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't listen to a ton of shooting podcasts. When I started shooting, I started to listen to exclusively Precision Rifle Media, but he has not had too many episodes recently, so I don't listen to Precision Rifle Media regularly. The ones that get me, um, that I get alerts to and that I listen to regularly are, um, I hang out with Frank, so I don't always listen to the Everyday Sniper, but I do because I I get a kick out of the stuff that he says. Um, I listen to Max Ordnett. I started shooting and I met Tyler. He was ROing the Sniper Adventure Challenge. And I really dig the content that Max Ordnett puts out on their podcast. It's just no shit, straightforward, like do this or don't. But if you don't do it, like, you know, rock on and join, you know, the rest of the peanut gallery. If you do do stuff, then, you know, get after it. And here's the stuff that matters. And so Max Ordnett always puts out good information. I can't think of a podcast... I don't always agree. Like I like listening to things that I won't necessarily agree to. I but when it comes to shooting stuff, I listen to Max Ordnett uh, podcasts as soon as they come out, and then I listen to Miles to Matches because I think it's a really cool idea to talk about shooting when you're going to the match rather than afterwards. Because like there's almost nothing more boring than a recap of a match with two guys just talking about stages of a shooting oh my god it makes me want to vomit so uh if podcasts have match recap stuff like i'll just turn it off and find something else to listen to but i love not only how nice and positive and helpful um francis and chad are on the miles to matches but it's just fun to listen to them and they're so psyched and they're going to a match and they're talking about you know all the stuff that they did and and it, it's generally helpful information, so I really, I really dig that. And as a side note, uh, Chad recently uh, stopped doing what he was doing to focus on his five by five precision. And <clears throat> I have one of his shot timers, and I have now a couple of his barrels that I'm going to shoot next year to try to help support him. I you hear a lot about oh support the companies that support the matches and don't you know so on and so forth, but um, man, people that are trying to fulfill a dream like that, like Chad is with his 5x5 precision. He chambers his own barrels for competition, and he chambers other people's barrels. I couldn't help but be really excited to get some barrels spun up by Chad to help support him um, You know, on his quest to turn that into something bigger. I, you know, I love that idea. People are doing good things, and, and that... I, you know, I saw, I saw, and I'll probably even get more barrels. I just, I just like the idea of trying to support that and that positive growth towards giving people tools that work good and that are reliable so they could go after uh, their goals and um, that kind of stuff. So let's see, I was talking about podcasts and stuff that I listen to. So I listened to that. Um, I have listened to some of the mythology of marksmanship that Morgan King has put out. Uh, I try not to, uh, you know, I just, I, man, you just lose me when you talk about matches um, too much, but the shooting stuff, the content about the, the things and the thoughts, I love those. And, um, with Paul Higley, I I just really enjoy listening to Paul and the things that he has to say and the advice and their, 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 the things that they've learned, like that, that is really good, but it's kind of 50, 50, like, cause the match recaps are, you know, I mean, everybody does it and you can't really help it, but man, there's just nothing to get from it really. And so I, you lose me there. 
Uh, I also don't shoot those kinds of matches very much, so I can't I can't really uh, talk too much to that stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know. Like, uh, so when it comes to getting information, like it's either directly from somebody or somebody that actually shares good information. Then you could think about how that applies to your particular goals. But I think that's way better than just kind of perusing media and trying to like, you know, sample and get you know, tasters of what everybody does, because that's a really good recipe for an elastic waste of time, right? You're just, you're, you're applying like random, you know, you get excited, but you're not actually going to learn or, or do anything. So, um, that is one of those things that, that, that I try to avoid because I, you know, I want to be able to show it and prove it and back it up wherever, whenever, however. And to do that, you have to have real skills that are assessed and tested and reliable and repeatable. And, you know, I, I'm really not into, um, and, and if I, I track some shooters as, as references, but I only track shooters that I think are consistent. That doesn't, they don't have to necessarily be at the top, but, if they go to a match in their 30th place, and then they go to a match in their 10th place, and then they go to a match in their 40th place, then they go to a match in their fifth place. Like those aren't people that I'm interested in because that's indicative of going to matches that may or may not have good shooters at them. I want to see shooters that are consistently top 10, regardless of who shows up, and have that kind of performance. And 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 those are the people who, you know, I might look at their Instagram or I might look at their Facebook or I might call them up and talk to them. And so most of those guys I just call up and I'm like, hey, you know, how, how are you training and how are you doing? And because those are the metrics that I like to follow. But people that have wildly variable scores, that's just a highlight of the thing that I think is negative about some competitions and that it's just a measure of who goes. And then if you can afford to go to a ton of them, your points are going to be completely misleading, Right. And so there are plenty of super fun comps that have nothing to do with points, really, or, or, or season stuff like Competition Dynamics and Guardian and uh, some of the outlaw matches and local leagues, I think, are really, really cool in that regard. But um, let's see. Let's shift it now towards some of the info that's coming in about hunting. Like, man, I, I think all the... I, I spent a lot of time doing hunter matches this year and field matches this year. And sometimes you say like, okay, well, it's good preparation for hunting. Well, you know, tons of things are good preparation for hunting, but those matches, they're, they're shooting matches, right? They're not training for hunting matches. They're not training for anything other than just doing, but it's a different and it's a refreshing style of shooting match. Yeah. You could, you could say like, if you get good at this, you'll, perform better in the field because of course like if you actually get better then you'll actually perform better regardless of where it is but um trying to sell it as like okay hunters need to do this it's like no hunters don't need to do it at all but if hunters want to learn at becoming better marksmen then it's a good outlet for sure anybody that wants to be a better marksman going to a competition is going to make you a better marksman because that's what it's all about and it, it tests cool skill sets that do relate to much more in the world when it comes to using a firearm in the field match settings than the flat range, uh, you know, start with your mag in, bolt back behind your rifle kind of thing because uh, that that's not realistic, right? But um, but in terms of like making the the argument that, oh, hunters would be so much better off if it's, I don't, I don't think that's true. And and I think that 
it also creates kind of a point of contention with hunters because, like, you know, why would you, what, why do you need to tell me what to do? Especially if you go talk to a hunter uh, that's been doing it for 40 years and they're successful every year and they zero on a whatever, six-inch shootancy. Um, the standard to achieve a goal is the standard, whether you like it or not. So if that's a standard that they can always achieve, and that's the standard that gives them success, then you can't argue with that, right? It goes back to like the episode that I talked about goal setting. Goal setting, you have to pick the standard, right? And you don't want to ever dip below the standard, so it's a good idea to make sure that you perform above a standard, but that that standard is repeatable and always achievable. But doing too much to go well beyond that standard, you're going to sacrifice the other components that are required to perform. And so you want to make sure that first you get all of your skill sets above the standard before you have one that's 100 times higher than the standard, but everything else sucks, right? So, um, you know, for lack of a better comparison, like, you know, you hear people say training for, for mammoth, right, which is like a walking competition with shooting. If, if, if you need to be able to walk three miles an hour for a couple miles, and you can do it at four miles an hour, you probably don't need to work on walking anymore, right? You could work on shooting and whatever the shooting standards are, right? But if you can't, if you can't walk five miles at three miles an hour, whatever the standard is, four miles an hour, um, then you need to work it. At, but, but is it important for you to be able to have, you know, an 80-pound pack and go at 10 miles an hour? No. Is it going to help you at the match if you can run the rucks? No, because it's simply a pass-fail evolution, right? So, um, and that might be speaking out of turn, but all I'm saying is that when you can consistently and always achieve that standard, whether you're first or, you know, you come in 30 seconds before the end of the time hack, um, you know, there might be, there. I mean, I think there's usually benefits to having time when you finish an exercise before another evolution starts, but I do think that there are certain criteria. Like if you can, if you can shoot one MOA and you can build and break under 10 seconds, you know, like positional shooting competitions, you're probably not going to time out on, right? So there's other things that you could focus on, like, you know, whatever you need to focus on. But if you can't do any of that stuff, bring it all up. And so, um, you know, when it, when it, when it comes to, to hunting, there's a hell of a lot more involved with hunting and hunter prep and the whole endeavor of going out and harvesting an animal. Now that, you know, if you pay somebody $60,000 to drive you out on an ATV and put the gun on an animal for you and all you have to do is pull the trigger, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, when I think about hunting, I think about like you put on a pack and you go into the mountains, you know, with you and a buddy and you might go out there for 48 hours and you might be out there for, you know, six days, seven days, but eventually you're going to be carrying that animal back out of the mountains. That, that's kind of how I think about hunting. And um, to that extent, uh, there's a podcast called Hunt Backcountry. I like those guys because they talk about kind of the full spectrum hunting, training, lifestyle stuff because they're not competition shooters, but they are um, 
super into hunting. And so they talk about packs and equipment and footwear and training and shooting and so on and so forth. But the shooting standards that they have are the standards that are required for them to successfully harvest animals ethically, not the standards of competition, because you don't need competition standards to hunt if you understand your limits and you, sh- and you hunt within your limits. So anyway, uh, so, so circling back to plasticity, I think that maintaining a standard is plasticity, but also understanding that if you obsess too much about one niche aspect of your um, skill sets and you neglect the other ones, um, you know, you're not going to achieve the goals that you want, right? And those all require those plastic, trained change to achieve a standard, not just be trained, but be trained in current and train current and enable under realistic conditions to proficiently demonstrate that you're above the standard. I think that's that's pretty cool. Um, so the Hunt Backcountry guys, they, they talk a lot about stuff, and, and I guess that's a podcast that I do listen to. I also listen to Meat Eater, mostly just for the banter, because they don't ever really talk about anything important. I just kind of like how they shoot the shit and talk about stuff. Um, another guy that, that I read and interact with is Ryan Kleckner, but he is kind of all over the place. But everything that he says is practical and helpful, and I think relates more back to the generalized shooting community as a whole, and I think he does a really good job um, kind of bringing things down to a level that's practical and applies to a variety of goals, not just competition shooters. And I can see how if you were a competition shooter, you might be at odds with some of the things that he says, but he's not speaking to competition shooters. And and in reality, you know, there's hundreds of competition shooters and there's millions of hunters. And so he's speaking to, you know, the general gun owner, rifle owner, hunter, outdoorsman, and we're the minority in terms of, of, of riflemen. So he's speaking to more people than we are in any way. So his, uh, gun university is actually pretty cool. And I looked at his, uh, you know, from time to time I go there and check things out and he has a really cool new calculator that is a, a, like a ring selector. So if you don't know what rings to get for your scope on your rifle, like you plug in all your info and it pumps out like these will all work on your rifle. And I think that's pretty cool. So if you uh, haven't looked at gun university, like go check that out because it's pretty neat. And I like that he's always working on adding practical things for the average shooter to be able to get good information and reliable information about things that they might need that are above the standard that they might have and not go out and buy the wrong thing because man, I've bought a lot of stuff and then realized that it wasn't what I was looking for or it didn't work the way that, you know, it was advertised or broke or whatever. So it's good to be able to go to a source that filters a lot of that stuff out. And I think Gun University is doing a really good job at that. Now, hunting, I don't think of as going out at night and shooting pigs, but in Texas and other parts of the country, that is the case. And recently, AccuFire um, and I, you know, I've, I've talked about AccuFire a lot, but AccuFire has a new thermal, the Incendus, and it's a, a 640 thermal, and it's badass. They used it at the Sniper Adventure Challenge on one of the stages at night where shooters had to engage targets, and there was zero illume, like the, the moon was not up, and so these thermals, um, they had, you know, various heat signatures out there and they had night vision and they had thermals and people were using them and they've been testing them on pigs and deer and um, I'm really excited about getting some footage of my own with these thermals because as technology becomes more readily available the thermal applications 
uses and familiarization. It's, it's just so much more available now to the public for prices that are totally realistic and reasonable to own. And so in the near future, I expect to be an owner of some of those and talk about them because the idea of going out at night and using thermals, uh, you know, especially, you know, where you're pig hunting or you're, you know, doing whatever, that is really cool. And these work extremely well and they're very affordable. So I'm super excited about uh, the AccuFire and Sendus. Um, another thing, just a side note, since I'm just talking about stuff, I went into Mile High. I go in there quite a bit because it's just down the road from my house. And I was looking at ammo, and I noticed they have a ton of 300 PRC ammo. So if you're hunting and you're hunting with 300 PRC, which I imagine would be a great caliber for hunting a lot of the animals in North America, uh, they have boatloads of 300 PRC, 225 grain hornady, and um, that's chilling out there. But actually, when I was there, uh, Hawken from Spur w- just happened to be there, and they had the um, the Spur chassis. Now, my high carries, like, basically, if they carry it, it's only high-end, like, reputable stuff. So you're not going to go in there and look at things that, you know, it's not like going to Cabela's where you, where you can kind of see the, the cheaper end of stuff. When you go to Mile High, you're like, you only see the nice stuff. So... Um, you know, I know that they, they're getting a number of uh, impact precision 737s and the, the new Hunter Cut ones are coming in. And uh, I'm not sure if they're spinning up uh, barrels and stuff like that for them. Uh, I'd have to ask Randy or Adam uh, to, to explain a little bit more of that. But, but, you know, you can go there and you can get impacts and you can go there and you can get KRG uh, chassis, but you can also get spur chassis, I guess, and you can get Accuracy International. I got my ATX there. And um, they have, you know, all the all the high end scopes. They've got zero compromise, night force, loophole, Zeiss. Uh, you can go in there and look at them, and they'll show you the differences in and out. You can take it outside to make sure that the lights aren't playing tricks on you. They don't play any tricks there. They're pretty straightforward. But the spur chassis, I've played a lot around with 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 a ton of chassis because you know I'm interested in positional shooting, and obviously with positional shooting. The length of pull makes a big difference, and the settings of your cheek riser make a big difference. The balance of the rifle and, and the stability and all of those components play a role in precision and accuracy. So I was really curious to see that spur chassis, and I talked to them about some of the features and what I, I didn't get to shoot it. So I don't have any credible kind of shooting stuff, but I was really excited to see that it was there. Screw around with I might go in and see if I could borrow one. I think they have shop chassis to go take to the range but it seems really exciting now it's a little heavy on the hunter style chassis like I, i'm pretty sure you could get uh, a heavy like uh for, for the hunter division you could probably get one that was sub 16 you could build a for sure you could build a sub 16 pound rifle with it but i don't think you could get sub 12 with it but nonetheless um it has uh, really easy to adjust length of pull. It's just got this trigger, and you pull it, and you can adjust your length of pull on the clock. And my guess is you could, on a single stage, have settings for you know, prone and standing and toggle between the two without timing, without slowing yourself down. It was so easy to use that length of pull thing, and it sets, and there was no give which I would, you know, a lot of things like they rattle. Like if you have a folding stock, it, it could rattle. And if you have a cheek riser that's adjustable, it could rattle. And these tolerances, the way that they had springs set into them and bevels set up in a way that there was no shift in 
uh, there was no wiggle so that it felt really solid and secure. And I screwed around with it quite a bit in the shop, changing the length of pull, seeing if I could do it under speed. You could put little, um, you, you could, you could set them so that, you know, when you made it long for prone, um, it just stopped almost like a zero stop for your length of pull. Like it went out to your prone length. And when you stood up, you could set that stop at, at the short end to where you needed it for, for standing so that you could just go back, 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 back and forth, back and forth. They also have this cool Arca slider that um, uh, it locks whatever you have clipped into your Arca on it, but unlike ones where you had to pull levers and there's little notches and whatever, this thing, you just easily depressed a button with your thumb and slide it in and out in, in and out. I mean, it was the best and smoothest Arca locking system that would not slow you down whatsoever. And it, it would not come loose whatsoever. And I have a huge issue with like my bipods flinging off my chassis after a couple shots and you can't tighten it down to the point. And I understand that the new really right stuff locking stuff does that, but you know, my, my XLR elements and all those, they don't have those locking cuts in them. And, and I don't have the new locking, uh, really right stuff thingamabobbers and, you know, just having to always be looking at things that are hundreds and hundreds of dollars to kind of make what you have work seems silly. This thing was perfect. It just slid in and out, and it was like that. To me, that was the coolest feature. I mean, aside from the length of pull changer, um, the the Arca thing was super cool. And anyway, so I reached out, and some shooters that have been shooting it, I didn't hear any negative feedback whatsoever about it. It's perfectly balanced. It is massively customizable, and it's quick adjusting to the point where I've never seen another chassis that was as easy and quick to adjust as this. Now, I, I don't shoot for spur. I don't, I'm not sponsored by them. I don't, you know, I'm getting no kickbacks from this. I'm just saying that when I looked at it at first, it looked badass. So if you're interested in that and it's something that you've been thinking about, man, you know, I, yeah, it's, it seems pretty awesome. Now, I'm gonna, pretty soon here, I'm going to be testing an MDT out. I'm going to be talking about that, and I'm going to be testing some other ones. But if I can get my hands on one of these spur ones, I'm going to get it just for the sake of having one and, and being able to test it out and to speak credibly about how fast and dynamic it is because I see the requirement for manufacturers to be making things that make shooters better rather than just making more shit because of no good reason, right? Because there's all these good ideas and products Right, like the compass thing, and uh, in the range finding binos, like there are all these great ideas, but then they don't work. So then there's these great ideas that people are buying it for, but then they realize that they you know spend a ton of money for something that that doesn't work at the level that they need it to work at, and you have all these gadget gadgets and gizmos that don't do what they uh, you know are, are are saying are are important for stuff. But there are some things that really will make a big difference with your shooting, and. Um, I think that chassis development still has room to go and who, you know, the people that are making those changes and can demonstrate that those features, you know, balance the rifle better, stabilize the rifle better. You know, when you put your, if you put a light rifle down on a bag, does it stabilize as fast as a heavy one? Um, under recoil, does it slide back evenly or does it tilt or does it, you know, I mean, those are things that, that people can 
work towards maintaining and, and, and achieving higher levels of performance out of that equipment. And I think those kinds of companies that are innovative and adjusting towards a thing that makes it easier to shoot, shit, that's, that's freaking awesome. So uh, I think that that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, all right, my kiddos are starting to kind of trickle down into the basement and make noise, so I'm going to sign off now before I lose my train of thought. And so uh, to circle back around, though, to the end, like think about that idea of elasticity, right? If you're going to poke something that's elastic and it's going to go back to exactly the way that it was, consider that if you stay exactly the way that you are forever, you're not going to learn or grow or get better at anything. You're going to stay exactly the same as you are now. To become better, you have to take that risk of plastic change, right? You'll stretch out, but you'll never stretch back to the way that you were. And that if you have goals and you're not quite there, you need to figure out creatively how to stretch that plastic and grow that volume so that it can so that it can maintain that stretching, that permanent stretching into these territories and areas that you haven't occupied because to occupy and perform or do something new that you've never done before, you have to be different fundamentally. So to be different, you also have to dedicate, focus, and analyze in a way that you can show measurable change. And one of the best ways to do that, that people do but don't maximize is when you go to a course or you hire somebody to train you, focus on what they've trained you for for a while before you give up and start saying like it's not working because real change and real stuff doesn't just happen overnight, right? Nothing that demonstrates real change or shift is going to happen overnight. It's going to require focused, specific energy and dedication in that area. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that any of the places that I said are bad. I'm saying that go to them, but honor them and, and respect the course and respect the information by dedicating some time and energy to developing the skills that they taught you. And then you'll maximize everyone's instruction and not just kind of, you know, waffle, waffle around and flop around and wish you were better, but not understand why. Like, the reason you get better is that you put in dedicated, focused energy. But if you don't do that and you don't give it enough time, right? I'm not going if to, if I do 20 push ups, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow with a giant chest and look like Chris Hemsworth or whatever, right? I'm going to have to do push ups for a number of days weeks, months, years, and, and it's going to take time and effort and it's just not going to happen overnight. And that, that stuff, you have to have the faith. If you've paid them in the first place, then you have to have the faith that their curriculum works. And, and, you know, I say that to the people that I coach and I say that to the people that have been coming to the assessment, just the same, you know, don't sample a little bit of everything and expect a whole lot of change, right? Dedicate your focus to get real change. And that change is scary because it permanently pushes you in that direction. And you won't know until you measure it afterwards. But that's really the only thing that we can do. Um, so anyway, hopefully, if you guys are psyched about your hunts, um, reach out and tell me what you're going to be hunting and where you're going and the equipment that you're taking, that kind of stuff, and the standards that you're trying to achieve uh, for for accuracy and precision, and then what are your max distances and your limitations that you're putting on yourself. 
Are you camping out there? Are you carrying all of that stuff out there with you? Are you going out on shorter day hunts? That kind of stuff, like, I love to hear about. And I love to hear the ideas on what caliber is effective for the, the species that you're hunting. Um, and, uh, you know, for, I, I, you know, not in a non-judgmental way, I'm just really curious about what people do and how you think about what is important to actually achieve that stuff. You know, I guess like right before I sign off, like I was listening to, to Mike Glover and I don't know if you follow Mike Glover or Fieldcraft or anything like that. And I, I don't, always agree with what he has to say. In fact, more often than not, I disagree, but he was recently saying that he hunted a uh, an elk and the guy that took him out told him to bring a bunch of 6.5 ammo because he was going to shoot it over and over and over and over again. And the explanation is one that I hadn't heard before, but he said that because there's fat, that fat seals up the bleeding and that'll allow the animal to move more. So the more damage that he can do, but, but that's not something that I had actually heard. And he was kind of justifying bringing a bigger rifle like, you know, 300 Win Mag or higher rather than a 6.5 Creedmoor, and that's not an argument or an explanation that I had heard of, but I don't shoot a lot of elk. So, um, you know, in terms of the, the wound channel that's produced, uh, that's, that's just not... Uh, some of those conversations are really interesting to me. Anyway, he did it, and he was talking about kind of the after-action report of this hunt and why he had engaged it a lot of times, and he was justifying using something else, but he's coming from a military background, and a lot of times the military guys have different ideas on how stuff happens. But anyway, um, that's something that that is interesting because it's different, and when it's different but successful, uh, I'm always curious about what some of you guys think because I know plenty of you that go out there and you take one shot and it's no problem. So that's a big kind of left and right span of what actually worked. Uh, makes me wonder about Mike's level of precision ability and his actual shoot. I know he's a sniper and, and you know, but everybody's a sniper, right? So, I, you know, but it makes me wonder about shot placement and precision and it makes me wonder about a lot of things. So something that I'm, ex I'm kind of trying to learn a little bit more about, but, um, Anyway, not, not, I know that was a total tangent there, but, you know, so if you have lower standards of precision and capability, is it, I guess it would be beneficial to have something much bigger to cause more damage. But I think shot placement seems more important, but I had never heard about fat sealing up the wound channel. And I'm not so sure I totally buy it, but that's why we're out here talking about stuff. And um, I always default back towards, you know, precision and capability of shot placement. But on the other hand, those are some huge animals and they're capable of doing a lot despite the fact that there's a bullet through the heart and lungs. So, uh, you know, what do you guys think in terms of the size of the round and the speed of the round and the shot placement and the wound channel, that's something that I would be really curious about hearing about. Not that I'm going to you know, be doing hunting episodes, but that's a conversation that I am curious about and hearing about people's feedback and their success. Like, you know, how many of you have had a perfect shot placement with a 6.5 Creedmoor and had the animal run off and be difficult to locate because it didn't bleed very much? That, that would be a really interesting study uh, from the listeners, and maybe it's not. I don't know. To me, it seems curious because it's not. So, I don't. It's not something I spend a lot of time doing. So, um, anyway, until next time.